Hello and a very warm welcome to you, my dear listener, to today's edition of New Life. Coming to you live from the heart of Nairobi, this is Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. We have a great show lined up for you, and I am your host, Monica Kamokwa. It's a joy to have you tuned in. Starting off the show for us today is Lydia Achieng, who will be telling us more about marriage is not a 50-50 proposition in the family life segment. Then later on, Ian Muse will be joining us in the Bible segment to tell us more on the cross of Calvary. But that is after we get the song Tumaini by Masalio Echoes. Stay tuned. <laughs> I'm 
Welcome back dear listener that was Tumaini by Masalio Echoes. You're listening to the New Life program coming to you live from the heart of Nairobi. This is Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. Lydia Aching now joins us with more on marriage is not a 50-50 proposition in the family life segment. Stay tuned and be on the know. Dear listener, welcome to today's Family Life program. I'm your presenter, Lydia Aching. Today's topic is marriage isn't a 50-50 proposition. Have you heard the statements or maybe you've even said the statements? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Or marriage is a 50-50 proposition where each partner should be willing to come half the way to compromise and make things work? While those statements sound good, they really aren't principles you can always count on to make your marriage work. If you have a marriage that functions well on these principles, then you're one of the rare ones because eventually something comes along in life to mess up the equation. And then what do you do? Is this really the biblical principles the Bible talks about? Throughout the Bible, we are told to go the extra mile, serve one another, die to self and submit to one another. We are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. So when you put the above principles up against what it says in God's word, you can see that there is no 50-50 equation involved. In a perfect world, it would work that way, but we don't live in a perfect world on this side of heaven. We live in a fallen world where unfairness is a part of everyday living, so God asks more of us than that. To consider this further, we'd like to share a portion of our familylife.com article. It is impossible to determine if your spouse has met you halfway, because neither of you can agree on where halfway is. Each is left to scrutinize the other's performance from a jaded, often selfish perspective. Many times in a marriage, both partners are busy, overworked, and feel taken for granted. The real question isn't who faced the most pressure that day. The important issue is, how do you build oneness and teamwork instead of keeping score and waiting for the other person to meet you halfway? The 50-50 plan is destined to fail for several reasons. One, acceptance is based on performance. Many people unknowingly base their acceptance of their spouses on performance. Performance becomes the glue that holds the relationship together, but it isn't really glue at all. It's more like Velcro. It seems to stick, but it comes apart when pressure is applied. What a marriage needs is super glue. 2. Giving is based on merit. With the meet-me-halfway approach, a husband would give affection to his wife only when he felt she had earned it. If she always cooked tasty meals and balanced the checkbook, then he would drop her a few crumbs of praise and loving attention. She, in turn, would lavish affection and praise only when he vacuumed the carpet and always arrived home on time. 3. Motivation for action is based on how each partner feels. As a newlywed, it's easy to act sacrificially because the pounding heart and romantic feelings fuel the desire to please. But what happens when those feelings diminish? 
If you don't feel like doing the right thing, perhaps you won't do it at all. I didn't feel like turning off the lights that night at our apartment, so I didn't. 4. Each spouse has a tendency to focus on the weakness of the other. Ask a husband or wife to list their spouse's strengths in one column and the weaknesses in the other, and the weaknesses will usually outnumber the strengths 5 to 1. Ultimately, the world's plan, the 50-50 performance relationship, is destined to fail because it is contrary to God's plan. What a marriage needs is the superglue of Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. It's what we refer to as the 100-100 plan, which requires 100% effort from each of you to serve your spouse. The Bible describes this plan well in Matthew chapter 22, verse 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no closer neighbor than the one you wake up to each morning. And since most of us love ourselves passionately, we are well on the way to implementing the 100-100 plan if we take a similar approach to loving our spouses. Start by stating the 100-100 plan like this. I will do what I can to love you without demanding an equal amount in return. In marriage, you will hear a voice that says, Why are you making the bed this morning when she wouldn't bring you a soft drink last night? Or... Why should I not buy this outfit when he spent $50 last weekend on golf? That voice has to be silenced if you're going to live out the 100-100 plan. Yes, there will be times when one person appears to get the advantage in the relationship. But love requires sacrifice. Stick with the 100-100 plan and you will see fruit increasing cooperation and intimacy in your marriage. A bit of grace always helps too. Sometimes a couple can make issues out of things that really don't matter. Maybe we had parents who did that as we grew up, but that's not the type of person I want to be or one I'd enjoy living with. Barbara and I have learned over the years to let a lot slide. We don't take issue or talk about many minor disappointments. Marriage is the union of two imperfect people who in their selfishness, sinfulness, and demands of each other will cause disappointment and hurt. You must lay aside those difficulties and hold fast to forgiveness, love, and Christ's command to love even those who don't at times appear to love you. You will never have all your expectations met in marriage on this fallen planet. But if you concentrate on implementing the 100-100 plan, your life will be so full of satisfaction that you may not care. We hope this helps and pray this message ministers to your marriage. This material is provided by Marriage Missions International. Until next time, God bless you. Are you just joining us? This is the New Life Program with me, Monica Kamokwa, coming to you live from Adventist Oil Radio, the voice of hope. You haven't missed a lot as we still have more coming up. Your feedback is always welcome and you can drop your comments, suggestions or questions through the producer, Adventist Oil Radio, PO Box 42276, code 00100, Nairobi, Kenya. 
or email us at awrnairobi@eku.adventist.org. Now that that is off the way, let's get the song Pazeni Sauti by Masalio Echoes. You are listening to the new live program coming to you live from the heart of Nairobi. This is Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. Don't change the channel. My dear listener, thanks for choosing our station. We are because you are. Right about now, Ian Muse joins us for the Bible segment with more on the cross of Calvary. Be blessed. I greet you, dear listener, in the name of Jesus Christ. Welcome to our study today and feel at the feet of Jesus. The topic of our study is the cross of Calvary. I am a presenter, Ian Musu. Only a few of us understand the real meaning of Christ's suffering and death on that cross. We have only a dim comprehension of the conflict he passed through and the kind of agonizing death he experienced. Could our eyes be opened to grasp the true significance of his sacrifice, there would be no more miserable collaborating with Satan. Our weakness would be turned into courage and victory. The Bible writers struggle to explain in human language the mysterious incarnation and atoning death of the Son of God. Often, we weep under the power of their inspired testimony. We get glimpses that boggle our minds, but still... We are only scratching the surface of a subject which we will continue unfolding for all eternity. Paul wrote, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 to 8. These sublime words describe the condensation of Jesus from the throne to the manager and then to the cross. There is not an illustration in all the vast reaches of time or space that could probably portray what Jesus did. 
Sometimes he tried to fabricate imaginary circumstances to convey the idea of his sacrifice. A diseased pack of wild dogs is described, covered with many scabs and running sores. It is postulated that if one human being would only submit to become one of the dogs, the entire pack could be saved from imminent death. Could anyone be found who would voluntarily lay aside his human condition and suffer the unspeakable indignity of turning into a dog? Dramatic as it may sound, that is feeble illustration of the humiliation of the divine Son of God. We cannot grasp the glory and position from which he separated when he emptied himself and came into the condemned dying family of Adam. This is why it is so difficult for Christians to grasp the atonement. Why do so many treat casually the events of the cross? Surely because they do not understand what their salvation cost the Son of God. It is only when we know the cost of something that we begin to appreciate it. We value most highly that which requires the greatest investment. All of us have encountered people who display a mystifying indifference toward the sacrifice of Christ. It was easy to see why many people are so non-committal toward the cross of Christ. Even though they had been around Christians all there and had hundreds of sermons, they hold the typical martyr view of the death of Jesus. It is simply not true that he died just like all the thousands of others who were crucified on the cross around the wall of Jerusalem. There can be no comparison. Christ did not die because of the nails, spear, or physical abuse. No amount of blows or pain could have produced the agonies of the cross. Others were enduring the same torture of the flesh, but none died from the same causes which took the life of the Son of God. His death was different. How was it different? What kind of death did he suffer? The Bible says that he, by the grace of God, should taste the death for every man. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. Think of that for a moment. He died my death and yours and every other person's. How could that be? Will we not have to suffer our own death experience at the end of our days? Yes, we will. And therein lies the misery and the wonder of what he did for us. He did not take our place in passing through the first death. He experienced the second death for every soul who has ever been born. It is so important that we distinguish between the first and the second deaths. Only then will we be able to understand why God the Father turned away from his Son on the cross. Angels were not permitted to minister to him. Jesus had to be treated as though he were guilty of every terrible sin which has ever been committed. Under the weight of that condemnation and guilt, he sweat great drops of blood and fell fainting to the ground in the garden. On Golgotha's hill, shut off from the approving presence of his father, he cried in torment, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew chapter 27 verse 46 Do you begin to see what some overlooked? He did not sense the real suffering of the cross and therefore had no true understanding of the cost of salvation. We shall attempt to expose some of those hidden costs which some did not recognize and which many today do not properly appraise. Paul wrote, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 Several fundamental questions are raised by these words of Paul. If only one man sinned, why did all have to die? Do people have to pay the penalty for others' men's sins? 
when Adam was in the Garden of Eden, he represented every person who would ever be born. As the head of the race, he stood before God as though he were every man. You and I were there, represented by the genes and chromosomes which later produced the hereditary pattern of Adam's children. As partakers of his body and mind, all his descendants had to be affected by what affected him. He is our father, and there are laws of heredity which reproduce the genetic pattern from age to age. What happened to Adam which also affected his children? God placed him on probation in that original paradise. The test was simple and direct. Obey and live, disobey and die. We remember so well the story of the tree in the midst of the garden. God said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Genesis chapter 2 verse 17 His continued existence in the perfect atmosphere of Eden depended upon obedience. Adam's happy future was conditional upon staying away from the forbidden tree, but he did not meet the condition. No provision had been made to remove the penalty or lighten it. The issue was clear-cut. Obey and live, disobey and die. At the age of 930, the sentence was fully carried out, and Adam died and was buried. All of Adam's children were born after his nature had become depraved through sin. They could inherit only what their father had to give, so they were born with a sinful, fallen nature. Please note that they did not inherit the guilt of their father, but only his weakened, sin-loving nature. There is no such thing as original sin in the sense that Adam's descendants were accountable for his sin. It is true that they also were subject to death just like Adam, but their death was not the punishment for Adam's sin. They died because they had received a mortal nature through the laws of heredity. Their death resulted from the degenerated constitution which Adam transmitted to his offspring. Only Adam's death was the punishment for his sin. Dear listener, the wages of sin have not depreciated. It still leads to eternal death today. It's my prayer that you can choose eternal life. Amen. Thank you for your time, listener, and God bless you. I was your presenter, Ian Musa. Thank you for staying tuned throughout the show. It is always a pleasure to have you. Remember to send us your views, comments, or questions about the show through the producer, Adventist Oil Radio, P.O. Box 42276, code 00100, and that brings us to the end of the show today. Until next time, when we meet again, I have been your host, Monica Kamokwa. God bless you abundantly. Oh uh-huh.
Oh, 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 oh,